be seated. Now, it's human nature to look for a shortcut, isn't it? I remember growing up, I was kind of famous for trying to find shortcuts, shortcuts that typically ended in catastrophe. And I remember my mom often had a saying that she would say to me, Son, if you spend as much time doing the work as you do trying to get out of the work, you'd be finished in half the time. I can think back to, uh, to, to junior high and in gym class, anybody in here have Coach Evans? Yeah, so y'all going to testify with me right here. I remember in gym class with Coach Evans, we were supposed to write a 10-page paper for about our favorite athlete. Mine was Barry Sanders. I was a Barry Sanders guy, had my stuff ready to go. But my girlfriend at the time told me that all that Coach Evans did, and if you know Coach Evans, this actually makes sense. You'd think that's probably true, that all Coach Evans would do would be to look at it, and if you had it, he would give you the credit for the grade. So all you really had to do was write the top page, write one page, and then staple ten blank pages to that top page, and you're gold. Well, look, I started off diligent, and I got about three and a half pages in, and I thought, you know what, I'm three and a half pages. I'm three times better than all these other clowns. And so I took and stapled six blank pages to the back of, that, of those three and a half pages, which, of course, ended up in my mother's classroom, which is a blessing to have your teacher, your mom there as a teacher at the school. Um, and, of course, you can imagine the conversations that came from there. I can even think back to last year. I had 36 pallets of sod, 36 pallets that I had to lay at my house. And you all that have laid sod before know that what you have to do before you lay the sod is you have to rake up the rocks, right? And so I bought rakes, man, and I'm raking. And for like two hours in the sun, I've raked and raked. And I'm like 1% of my yard in, you know? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, there's got to be an easier way. There's got to be a shortcut. So I called shortcut extraordinaire Phil Bussy, and I thought Phil would have a plan. And so Phil had this, this rake, that is homemade rake, that was two four-by-four posts with a piece of chain-link fence in between them that you use to uh, kind of rake an infield. And I thought, man, I'll use that, hook it up to my lawnmower, we're gold, right? Not only did that thing not pick up a single rock, Phil... But I turned it apparently too sharp, and the chain wrapped around the axle of my lawnmower, causing the 4x4 post to flip up and hit me in the face like a Mike Tyson punch, nearly flipping the lawnmower. I'm diving off midair. So yeah, we like shortcuts. And what we find out is that most of our shortcuts are in fact not shortcuts at all. They are excuses that we use to procrastinate the work that is to be done, right? But you know what? There is no place in which a shortcut is more lethal than our walk with Jesus. There is no place in which shortcuts are more lethal than in our pursuit of Christ and in our desire to be his disciples. See, what so many of us do is we open up our Bibles and we read of the standards that are there. We hear godly men and women speak into our lives and explain to us what godliness takes and what godliness looks like and, and the discomfort of the life of the disciple here on this earth. And we think there's got to be an easier way. There's got to be an easier way. 
There's got to be an easier version of Christianity. There's got to be a lighter version of discipleship. Brothers and sisters, what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see the disciples of Jesus, particularly Peter, looking for an easier way. And what we are going to learn from the very lips of Jesus is there is no lighter version of Christianity. There is no easier version of discipleship than the one that is given to us in the scriptures, lived out by Christ and his disciples. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And this week is really going to set up what we're going to talk about next week. So we're going to land this week talking about disciple, being a disciple of Jesus in the image of Jesus. And we're going to pick up there next week. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Matthew 16 verses 21 to 23. God's inerrant word says, From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of God. Of man. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. We are this morning at the hinge point in Jesus' ministry. Everything is swinging. Jesus has alluded several times to his death. Jesus has, over the course of his life and ministry, alluded to the cross to which he was going, but never has he been explicit. But from this day forward, the explicit ministry and teaching of Jesus will all be aimed at the cross and the suffering in the days ahead that he would face. When we come to the the gospel here, as Zach pointed us to last week, Jesus has left from Caesarea Philippi and he is descending down to Jerusalem. In fact, it will be the very last journey that Jesus will make this side of the grave. And as he barrels in toward Jerusalem, he is at the same time reaffirming what we have seen from Jesus all along. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus at his baptism identifies with sinful man's need to have their sin washed from them by the Heavenly Father. And and accepts the very mission of God given to him, the mission of his Father, the will of his Father. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that will put to the test. Would Jesus actually do what he had told his father he would do? And so we have Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness. And he tempts him and he says, I will give you all of this. I will give you an easy life. I will give you all the kingdoms of earth. And you will avoid the cross if you will just bow down to me. You will avoid the suffering. You will avoid the ridicule. You will avoid the reviling. Satan, in fact, offering Jesus a crown without the cross. And it is the temptation of chapter 4. And yet Jesus rejects it. Jesus says no, voluntarily bowing himself to the will of the Father. Jesus is not here some fatalistic robot doing what he has been, the, the puppet in heaven is making him do. No, he has submitted his will by the power of the Holy Spirit to go before the Father all the way to the cross. And from this day forward, this is what we see. The word that we 
that Jesus uses is the word must. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed. I must rise again. And the word must here is saying not that he has to because he is a robot, but because he has in fact resolved to live his life to the glory of the Father, to the will of the Father. So we see that Jesus must not only go to Jerusalem, but Jesus must suffer in Jerusalem. There's something strange here that happens in our text. Jesus says that it says that from this day forward, the continued ministry of the continued message of Jesus is that he is going to be killed by the Sanhedrin. The three parties that he mentions there, the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests, that those make up the Sanhedrin. So he's teaching his disciples that he is going to go and he is going to suffer at the hands of the religious elite. And Peter pulls him aside. Now, Peter has just been commended as having insight, knowledge given to him from the Father above. Knowledge that only God could have given to him when he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And now Peter pulls him aside and he says, God forbid it. God forbid it. That is a a literal translation of what is it. God forbid that you do what you're saying you're going to do. God forbid that's going to happen what's going to happen as you say it's going to happen. Now for all of us who have grown up here in the Bible Belt or have grown up in the church or have been discipled in the church, we think of Jesus and the cross as second nature. That that comes naturally to us. Us thinking of Jesus' suffering is, is very normal. In fact, it is an atrocity to me that the church has seemingly become bored with the suffering of Jesus. We zone out when we hear about the cross. We zone out when we hear about Jesus' suffering. But to a Jew in Peter's day, You did not associate the Messiah with suffering. You did not associate the Messiah with suffering. No, the Messiah was going to come as a political upriser, as as a dynamic military force that would overthrow Rome and reestablish the throne of David from which he would reign forever. The Jews of Jesus' day held fast a text like Isaiah chapter 9 that said, a child will be born and the government will rest upon his shoulders. They would hold fast to a text like Daniel chapter 7 that says, Before the Son of Man, all the nations will bow and he will thrash them, right? What they missed was Isaiah 53. What they missed was that before the servant would be, before the king would be celebrated, the servant would suffer. That he would, be cru- he would be crushed, wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That before he would strike down the nations, he himself would be struck on the face by a mere man, a sinner. And so for Peter, for the disciples of that day, for the disciples in that day, for all of the Jews hearing the message of Jesus, this is foreign. This is foreign. This is not who the Messiah is to be. This is not what the Messiah was going to accomplish. But what the Jews missed, and what Peter missed that day, is that Jesus had to suffer. Jesus must suffer, as he says, so that he can crush the very source of suffering. See, suffering exists because sin does. Suffering exists because sin does. Death exists because sin does. Cancer exists because sin does. Political oppression exists because sin does. The primary problem for the Jewish people was not that they were being oppressed by the Romans. 
The primary problem for the Jewish people was that they were being oppressed by sin. That they were under the bondage of sin, not a government, but sin itself. The government was just the mere groanings of a creation that has fallen. And the same is true in our lives. The sufferings that we have in our lives are symptoms of the bigger problem. They're symptoms of the brokenness that comes into the world as a result of sin. And so the sufferings that we encounter are mere groanings of a creation that has fallen, that must be restored by the Lord Jesus. And so we have, Peter, we have Jesus here saying that he must suffer. And brothers and sisters, he did suffer. He did suffer. Jesus suffered in every way that a man or a woman can suffer. Jesus suffered physically. Jesus would be, would, would often tell, tells us that he often has no place to lay his head. He no doubt went to bed many nights very hungry. He walked around on dusty roads hundreds of miles on sandals and, difficult, and through difficult places. He is reviled by everyone, uh, increasingly by the religious establishment of the day. Jesus is to be chained to a post and beaten like a dog until the hide comes off of his base of, of his back, so swollen that he would have been unrecognizable to those who knew him best. Nine-inch metal spikes were going to be driven through the nerve centers in his wrists, upon which he would have to pull himself up to breathe, ultimately leading to his suffocation on the cross. A crown of thorns was woven together and pressed down onto his brow, no doubt causing blood to begin to pour over his eyes and burn his eyes. Yes, Jesus knew physical suffering. And Jesus knew emotional suffering. Jesus was to be betrayed by a close friend, Judas. He was to be abandoned by perhaps his closest friend, uh, Peter, in his most desperate moment as he hung there on the cross. The crowd would revile him, shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. The religious leaders, his people, would incite a riot against him, leaving, leading to his own destruction. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it tells us that Jesus was in such emotional distress as he prayed in agony that the capillaries in his body burst, causing blood to ooze through the pores of his skin. But not only did Jesus suffer physically, and not only did Jesus suffer emotionally, but Jesus suffered spiritually. You see, often the apostles talk about the tree. The tree. We, we read about the tree. The, 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 the debt of our sin nailed to the tree in Colossians 2. And, and 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree is an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 21 that speaks of a tree being the representative of the very curse of God. And so as Jesus is nailed to the tree that day, he is nailed there under the curse of God, which the cup of his wrath, unfiltered wrath, stored up for thousands of years prior and thousands of years yet to come, poured over the Lord Jesus as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the Lord Jesus suffered. The Lord Jesus suffered so that you and I might have victory over suffering. So that the creation might have victory over suffering. He suffered so that the very source of suffering, sin itself, might be defeated. And so he can identify with us in our suffering. Do you have physical suffering? The Lord Jesus did too. Do you have emotional suffering in your life? Do you have relationships of betrayal? 
I've had moments of depression, moments of agony, emotional distress. The Lord Jesus did too. Have you been in the midst of spiritual warfare when the demons of the dark age has beat against your walls? The Lord Jesus knows that too. The Lord Jesus endured all of the penalties and all of the pains of sin and suffering just as each of us have. And he endured them perfectly and fully without ever abandoning the will of the Father. But he tells us he must not only suffer. Suffering is insufficient for the mission at hand for the Lord Jesus. Jesus must not only suffer, in fact, Jesus must die. He says, I must be killed. Must die. And the reason that Jesus has to die is because the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 teaches us that the wages of sin is death, that, that death is the great death knell of suffering in this world, of sin in this world. It is the ultimate and gravest of penalties that each of us have ever faced. Every funeral that we go to sings to the power and the, and the, and the depression of sin on this creation. And so Jesus to pay our debt, to pay the debt that that we had stored up for ourselves, could not just suffer our pain. He had to, in fact, die. It dates back all the way to the Garden of Eden. God places Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives them paradise on earth, fellowship with him, relationship with him. And he says, if you will trust me, if you will listen to me, If you will walk with me and love me and and you will obey my words, this will be yours forever. And you will reign as my image bearers with dominion over it all. Just don't eat of that tree. Trust me that that's what's best for you. Trust me that I'm telling you what is true and good and right. And all of this will be yours. But if you don't trust me, if you rebel against me, If you in fact show contempt for my name by utterly disobeying the one thing that I have told you to do, then you will surely die. And so every bull, every bird, every ram that is slaughtered in Leviticus is all pointing us to the same thing of the funerals that we have seen before. That the penalty of sin is death. Death physically, death spiritually, Death eternally. So if the Lord Jesus wants to defeat the very source of suffering, he has to overcome its gravest penalty, the penalty of death. So the Lord Jesus could not just come and hurt. He could not just spill one drop of blood. As I have heard a gospel song say, Jesus had to die. And he had to die utterly, totally, and literally. Not asleep, not a coma, dead. Literally dead. But the word killed there is an interesting one, isn't it? It means something different than to die. It's one thing to die. It's another thing to be killed. To die is, you you can have a heart attack and die. You can starve to death and die. You can get cancer and die. But to be killed is is to die at the hands of someone else. To be killed is to die as a result of someone else taking action. That is to eliminate your life, to take your life from you. Certainly, Jesus went there according to the definite plan of God. Acts 2.23 teaches us this. 
This was not a surprise to the heavenly father that he is going to be murdered. Jesus went there of his own volition. He went there voluntarily and willingly. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, Jesus was murdered on the cross. Jesus was murdered on the cross. Jesus was murdered by all the high priests inciting the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus was murdered by Pilate who washed his hands not wanting to upset his political path. Jesus was murdered by Herod who wanted to toy with Jesus and make a game of Jesus. Jesus was murdered by the Roman executioners from whom he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But Jesus was not just murdered by those people. He was not just murdered by the high priest and Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and the executioners. No, brothers and sisters, we are his murderers. We nailed Jesus to the cross. Our sin put him on the tree. It was our curse that he was bearing. It was our penalty that he was paying. It was our debt that he was redeeming. It was us. We are the murderers of Jesus. I remember on the night that I was saved, singing Amazing Grace, as you've heard me say before, and going away and and, and talking with my youth pastor at the time, and I was weeping. And I remember the one thing that I just, all I could say was, I did that. I did that. I killed him. It was me. I put him on the cross. I am his murderer. Me. Holy Lamb of God. Pure and perfect. Gracious and gentle. Righteous and kind. Gracious and glorious. And I am his murderer, and you join me in his slaughter. In this classic work that I would strongly commend to you, John Stott, in the cross of Christ, puts it like this. More important still, we ourselves are also guilty. If we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace as it teaches us in Hebrews 6.6. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priests, to our ambition like Pilate. Were you there when when they crucified my Lord, the old Negro spiritual asks? And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants. Guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his. For there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to worship and faith, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Brothers and sisters, this morning I beckon you to visit the cross. To visit the cross. At the cross, all of my self-righteousness and all of my arrogance melts away. At the cross, all of my pettiness melts away. All of my insecurity melts away. All of my self-importance melts away. 
At the cross, my blurry eyes see clearly again. At the cross, my muffled ears hear clearly again. At the cross, my life is put in perspective once again. Brothers and sisters, do you struggle to forgive? Do you struggle with bitterness? Do you struggle with anger? Visit the cross. Do you struggle being harsh towards your husband and your wife or your children? Visit the cross. Do you struggle wanting to pass the judgment of men and be popular on earth and have material things on earth? Visit the cross. Do you see yourself always looking down your nose at other people in judgmentalism? Visit the cross. Do you think more highly of yourself than you ought? Visit the cross. Do you have no reason to be happy on this earth? Do you find yourself in misery without joy? Visit the cross. Do you feel insecure in the love of God, impure in the love of God? Visit the cross. The cross is the place where our spiritual apathy and our religious boredom is melted away. It is the place where our our, our pettiness is incinerated. It is the place where our praiseless lips are giving praise once again and our running mouths can't help but be silenced. Brothers and sisters, visit the cross. Every single day, visit the cross. Let it not be said of our church. Let it not be said of us that we are bored and used to and accustomed to the cross. The cross is where we murdered our Savior, where he paid our debt and overcame our penalty that we might be right with God. Brothers and sisters, visit the cross. Jesus told us that he must not only go to the cross, he must not only die, he must not only suffer, but he must rise again. He must rise again. Oh, how Peter missed this that day. How the disciples missed this part of the message. How they they held on to the darkness of the cross and missed the glorious light of the resurrection. How the disciples missed it that day. You know, it's one thing to predict your death. I think lots of men who have died for lots of causes could see that they were being rejected by their day. Perhaps they could predict that they would even be murdered, martyred for their cause. Now Jesus did it miraculously so, fulfilling hundreds of years of prophecy, thousands of years of prophecy even. But perhaps you'd say, you know, I'll give him that. Who, Who can't predict their death? It's one thing to predict your death. It's a whole other thing to predict your resurrection. It's one thing to say, I'm going to die. It's another thing to say, well, three days after I die, I'm going to raise from the dead and I'm going to bear witness to you. You're going to see me. Your eyes are going to behold my glory again. Your eyes are going to see the the wounds in my hands. Your eyes are going to see the the wounds on my face and on my feet. You are going to see me again. And then actually pull it off. Then actually pull it off. See, Jesus couldn't just die. If he was going to defeat the source of suffering, if he was going to defeat sin, Jesus couldn't just die. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then sin, in fact, was the gravest of penalties. Sin, in fact, was not overcome by him. But, brothers and sisters, can we look ahead to next week and say, He is risen. He is risen. The grave has been defeated. 
Sin has been crushed. All of this is melting away. The groanings of earth are for but a moment. Jesus pointed his bat toward the fences and called his shot. And then three days after death was raised from the belly of the earth. See, here's the glory of the light that the disciples missed that day. Here's what I want us to hold fast to. Here's what Jesus was inviting Peter and the other disciples to hold fast to in the midst of this dark words about suffering and difficulty. Because understand, he is telling them not only will he suffer, but they will too as they follow him. Is that in the midst of that, suffering has a time limit. Suffering has an expiration date. Yes, hard days are ahead for the Lord Jesus. Jesus will be reviled. Jesus will be spat upon. Jesus will be punched. Jesus will be hated. Jesus will be rioted against. Jesus will be crucified. Jesus will breathe his final death. But that's only going to last for a little while. That's only going to last for a little while. Because three days later, Jesus is going to raise from the dead. And he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he will sit on his throne. And he will receive his crown. And he will be the one before whom all nations bow their knees and proclaim him as Lord. Jesus is going to suffer, but his suffering has a time limit. The disciples of Jesus, they're going to suffer. In the days following the crucifixion, the days following Pentecost, as the Spirit descends on them, they will go to prison. They will be hated. They will be tortured. They will be persecuted. Every single one of them will die a martyr's death. But Jesus, through the resurrection, by proving it in his own resurrection, is assuring them, brothers, you will suffer. Brothers, your life will be filled with hardship. Brothers, your life will be filled with brokenness. Oh, but your suffering has a time limit. Your suffering has an expiration date. It's going to hurt. It's going to last. But it's only going to last for a minute. Brothers and sisters, it's true of you too. As you live in a world that is groaning, as you look in the mirror and you know that your body is decaying, as you look around at your life and see chaos and hardship and difficulty, as you wake up every single morning not sure how you're going to get through the day, as you go to school realizing that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to walk against the crowd and be jeered by the crowd. You realize if you go to work and you're going to run radically after Jesus, you're going to get called names. You're going to be excluded from the conversations. You're going to be excluded from the social gatherings. As we're all around the globe right now, our brothers and sisters are under the threat of their lives. Just yesterday, or actually today, but in time zone-wise, yesterday, in Egypt, a terrorist attack killed 20 Christians on Palm Sunday. But brothers and sisters, it's only going to last for a little while. You hear me? It's only going to last a little while. 
the suffering and the groanings and the troubles and the pain and the tears and the agony and the decay and the death and the disease and the war is only going to last a little while because our Jesus has risen from the dead and he has put an expiration date on my suffering and on your suffering and on the sufferings of this earth. There will be a new earth and a new heaven and he will rule it with grace, sovereign power, sovereign goodness and Sovereign mercy. Oh, if Peter could have held on to that that day. Let's talk a few minutes now about Peter. Because when we, when we saw Peter before, last week in Zach's sermon, it's almost like we got two Peters, right? You know, like, and I think we all kind of suffer from spiritual schizophrenia, don't we? We're like, this week I'm red hot for Jesus, Cody, and this week I'm kind of live by myself but look good. Like, you know, like Christian, not good, you know, not handsome, but good, you know, you gotta strike We all struggle with spiritual schizophrenia. And that's what we seem to see in Peter's life because Peter is stuck on the suffering. Peter, like us, is averse to the idea of suffering. He is averse to the idea of Jesus' suffering. He is averse to the idea of him following in Jesus' suffering and bringing all the disciples with him. He is averse to all of the difficult things that Jesus is, say, is saying. The fate of the disciples is to follow their teacher. And he's looking at the path that Jesus is laying out. And he's not real fired up about the retirement plan. He's not really stoked about what the days ahead will hold for him. And so Jesus looks back at, at Peter and the words that he says are striking, aren't they? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance or you are a stumbling block to me. This is the strongest rebuke that Jesus issues. These words are given almost verbatim in chapter 4. In the middle of the wilderness when Satan face to face is tempting Jesus and, and trying to offer him a, a crown without a cross. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. But this is not Satan. This is Peter. This is the rock upon whom Jesus has already said he will build his church. This is the leader of Jesus' disciples. This is a confidant of Jesus. This is a friend of Jesus. Jesus has a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in his discipleship of Peter. So why does he say that to him? Why does he issue, not to the Pharisees, not to Caiaphas, the high priest, not to Pilate when he has the opportunity, he's silent in those moments. Why does he save such a harsh rebuke for Peter himself? See, in this moment, Peter was doing the exact th same thing that Satan had done in the wilderness. Peter here had put himself in the position of adversary to the will of God. Remember, what did, what did Satan offer him? He offered him a crown without a cross, right? An easy way, an easier path. A path which he could rule over the creation and not go to the cross. And what is Peter here saying? God forbid it. You will not go to the cross you will be the king. Remember in John chapter 6, after they fed the 5,000, they've already tried to force him to be king. See, that's who you're supposed to be. That is your destiny. That is the will of God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, There are no shortcuts to my Father's will. There is no easy path in my Father's will. Get behind me, Satan. Stop opposing the will of God. 
Stop looking for shortcuts. Stop looking for easier paths. Stop looking for paths of least, least resistance and commit yourself by the power of God, by the grace of God, to the glory of my name to go with me to the cross. You see, Jesus is doing here what he has always done. He is willingly surrendering himself to the bloody, gut-wrenching will of God. We all think that the will of God, there used to be a, a cliche, I don't hear it as often anymore, there used to be a cliche um, out there that said, there's no safer place than inside the will of God. And the problem with that is the cross. The problem with that is the cross. That the will of God was for Jesus to suffer. The will of God was for Jesus to go to the cross, to bear the burdens of the world, to bear the weight of sin, that sin might be defeated and sin might be crushed. And if we're to follow after Jesus in the will of the Father, do we think his will for our lives is going to look that much different than his will for his son? No. Jesus is doing here what he has always done. He is bowing and surrendering his life to the will of his Father, no matter how difficult it was. No matter how trying it was. No matter how painful it was. We know this was in fact painful for Jesus. Look at Gethsemane when he prays and begins to sweat great drops of blood. Pleading with God that there might be another way. He wasn't asking for a shortcut. He was asking, Lord, show me your will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, look at your life. Look at your, your, your walk as a disciple of Jesus. It's what Jesus is showing us through his voluntary submission to the cross is what we must seek in our lives. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus embrace the mission of Jesus and the will of God. Disciples of Jesus understand and know there are no shortcuts in the will of God. The only easy path that Jesus speaks of is in Matthew chapter 7. And he says that the easy path is the one that most people are on, and it is the way that leads to destruction. So disciples of Jesus, I call on you this morning. Not to look for the path of least resistance in your life. Not to look for the path in which you will find the least pushback in your high school. Not to look for the path in which you will find the least jeers in your workplace. Not to look for the path that will be the least confrontational in your home. Because brothers and sisters, it is very often the greatest path of resistance that the Lord God uses in our lives to make known the supremacy of his power and the glory of his plan. It is in the fires of suffering and in the fires of difficulty and the fires of difficult paths that faith is forged in us. So brothers and sisters, I call you and I call Iron City Baptist Church to embrace the mission of Jesus. To embrace the mission of Jesus. No shortcuts. No easy buttons. No Christianity light. The real thing. The path of greatest resistance in a sin-soaked world. The path that stands up on the edge of the Red Sea certain that it will be, it will be parted. 
The path that walks itself around Jericho seven times, knowing the voice of God will crumble the walls. The kind of, of faith that goes to the cross, knowing that three days later, the resurrection will come and we will be raised in final victory to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do not seek to embrace an easier uh, shortcut in your life. Instead, seek to follow after the will of God, submitted and surrendered in all things, knowing that the difficulties that you face and the hardships that are coming, they've got a time limit. And one day you will trade your cross for a crown. And it won't be a fleeting crown. It won't be a crown that dissolves in its glory. No, Paul teaches us it will be a crown of unfading glory. An eternal crown that will bring you standing in the house of God at the table of the Lord Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us for how often we look for shortcuts in the Christian life. Forgive us for how often we look at your, cry, your cross and are unmoved by it. Forgive us for how often we look at your cross and think that that is not where we are headed to. Lord, let us live this life now, moment by moment, dependent upon you, knowing that, Lord, you are our resurrection hope. Our victory is assured. Our suffering is fleeting. You have come and proven it. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, some of you are not saved. You're not a Christian. You've never surrendered your life to the cross. Come this morning. His cross is sufficient for your sins. Whatever they are, He has paid the price for them all. Come this morning that you might be washed clean. Come this morning that you might submit your life to Him and live in resurrection, hope, and glory, and victory. Christian, this morning maybe you'd look in your life and you'd see that you've been trying to take shortcuts. You've been looking for an easier version of Christianity than the one that's in the Bible. Today, would you repent? Maybe you'd come before your church family and just get on your face before the Lord and offer Him your life again. Maybe you'd come and confess your sin and ask that the Spirit would fill you and change you totally and utterly. Maybe you'd stand there and you'd lift up your voice and praise to the blood that has washed you clean. Would you stand with us?